Jesus. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we keep singing this, no matter the cost, let's go. No matter what it takes, your kingdom come. Even if we lose friends, even if our family disowns us, even if the government arrests us, even if our job fires us, even if the whole world looks at us as if we were scum. God, may your kingdom come. May your will be done. May we join with the saints of old, the martyrs. May we join with those suffering now. One more time, your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. In an attitude of prayer, let us lift up the persecuted church. Around 10 years ago, the Lord asked me to remember the persecuted church at every meal that I offer up prayer for. If you've ever ate a meal with me, I wasn't trying to be spiritual or to impress you, but I have been praying for the persecuted church for over 10 years at every meal. Many of you have heard me mention it. And let us think about them today as we're praying for the kingdom of God to come. Every hour, every day, Christians are dying around the world. Follow Open Doors on Facebook to learn more about it. In Nigeria, the Muslims have just recently killed people in church. In India, a few died not too long ago last week. In the Middle East, beheadings, capturing of Christians. In North Korea, there's currently concentration camps, as well as in China where Christians are sentenced. Let's pray right now for the church to be strong and brave, even in the midst of this persecution. Many of them pray not that they would leave their country, but that they'll have bravery to stay and keep preaching. So let's pray for them right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask you, God, to give them strength and courage. We certainly pray for justice to be done and these wicked, evil governments to be brought down. But right now, Lord, we pray for their courage. We pray for their strength to remain. We pray for you to provide for those who have lost their parents provide for the children who are orphans or those who are widows. We look to them as our examples today and we lift them up to you in prayer because they are important to us. In their country and culture, Jesus, serving you costs them something and they're willing to pay it. You said, what good is it to gain the whole world and let yet forfeit your soul? And God, they're giving up the whole world to serve you. Be with them today. And help us even here in America, God, as politicians, government officials, and our jobs, and especially city work, is being put the pressure on for us to come out and to deny you, to join with the world and join their parade. And when we don't, they want to push us in the closet as they come out of the closet. Lord, help us to be brave and not be shy, not to go into the closet, but to stand our ground wherever that place may be. May we be like Daniels who were sentenced to the lion's den because we refused to stop praying. Make us brave. 
Make us count the cost and help us to see eternity is worth it. Your love is worth it all. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Let's bless the Lord here today. God bless you. Thank you for coming. You may be seated in the house of God. It's so good to be with you during this time. Every season, Jesus is the reason. Amen. So this is a church that celebrates Jesus, not just around Christmas time, but every season. And next week, we're going to be having a special Christmas service. So bring your friends and family. Our children will be performing as well as our young adults, our youth. And then the last Sunday of the year, make sure you don't miss, I will be preaching by God's grace on Vision 2020, having the right vision for the year ahead. How many like that 2020 vision? So all that God has done in this church, we can thank you for what you've done to assist us, and we really want to show you how much we love you here at the end of the year with our Christmas uh, service and then with what we're going to be talking about at the end of the year. And man, it's just going to get better and better and better. This is just the beginning. Look at your neighbor. Say, get ready, get ready, get ready. This is just the beginning, baby. I got a lot more to give. And I have a lot more to give this city, not only this congregation, because this city needs to hear and see what we're doing. This is the last chapter of the book of Matthew. Make some noise for chapter 28. Come on. If you have joined with us this year, you know we've been going verse by verse, word for word through the book of Matthew, man. And uh, it's taken us all year to do it. There was 28 chapters. I believe we're right around this one being the 41st message. God has been amazingly gracious to us. I don't know about you, but I have learned so much by studying the book of Matthew. I hope that as we move from the book of Matthew into other lessons from different books of the Bible, that you remember what we've learned here. And if you have missed any of the chapters, any of the sections on the app, Facebook page, YouTube, you can go back and catch up with those. So its entirety is there for you, free to be a blessing to the body of Christ. So if you're ever reading through the book of Matthew and you're like, man, I wonder what Pastor Joe thinks about this, man, just go right to that chapter, go to that sermon, and you can hear what we think about it. Amen? Isn't that awesome? Verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And today we're going to end with the Great Commission. So let's go to chapter 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. When we left off in chapter 27, Jesus was crucified and buried. Now as he is buried, they're going to go check him out. And it's after the Sabbath. In our calendar, what day is the Sabbath? Saturday. In our calendar, it's Saturday. What is the first day of the week? Sunday. Now, they labeled their days by numbers. So the seventh day of the week was the Sabbath. Didn't matter what name you gave it. Our names come from pagans, Saturn Day, Sun Day, Sun God. Now, a lot of times when people look at the Bible and they see the Sabbath and how important it is, they think we as Christians should keep keeping the Sabbath. We shouldn't stop. We should worship on Saturday. 
And if you understand the way Jewish times function, it's from sundown to sunup, or rather sunup to sundown, depending on where you start. So a day would end, this day, Sunday, would end at sundown. Sunday would end around 4.30 here in the Midwest. Got to love the Midwest, right? 4.30, it's nighttime. But that's when Sunday would end. So when would Monday start? At the sundown of the previous day, and then it would go all the way through the night, and that's why we would literally call that midnight. Midnight would be in the middle of the night, and then in the morning, that would be the time they would start labeling the times of the morning as you get in further into what we would call the afternoon. And then the evening is right when the sun would set again. You guys get the point. So right here, the Sabbath is over, and they're going on the first day of the week to check out the tomb. This is why the tradition for Christians to meet on Sunday began. Don't let anybody tell you it's because it's the God of sun that was worshipped on this day and Christians took on paganism around the Council of Nicaea. Don't get into conspiracy and become a person that wears a tin hat with tin foil, okay? A lot of conspiracy theories do take partial truth, but when they go off in the air into error, it will lead you astray. So the first day of the week became the Christian celebration, the time to go to church, as it were, because that's the day Christ rose from the dead. Now, here's a tricky part where a lot of people get confused is why do we not keep the Sabbath when it's one of the Ten Commandments? So if somebody were to trick you who keeps the Sabbath, they'll mess with you like this. They'll say, do you keep all of the commandments? And you'll go, yeah. Do you keep the Ten Commandments? Yeah. You sure? Yeah. So did you go to church on Saturday or Sunday? Now some slick Christians will try to spiritualize the Sabbath and go, really, the Sabbath changed to Sunday, so my Sabbath is Sunday. Uh, sorry, you don't get the definition to change a day. So why is it we as Christians only keep nine out of the Ten Commandments? Because truly we're not keeping the Sabbath. I'm going to explain that to you in the next few moments. Are you ready? Go to Hebrews chapter 4. Now, some of you just want the Christmas story, but that's next week. Are you ready to think in church today? Okay, let's go to Hebrews chapter 4. Why don't we keep one of the Ten Commandments? Ought we to keep all the Ten Commandments? After all, we want them in courtrooms and so forth and so on. Well, one of the Ten Commandments is a ceremonial commandment. The rest of them are moral commandments. We keep the moral commandments of God in both covenants because his character does not change. But ceremonial laws do change. Let's listen to Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Do you notice he's talking about rest in Hebrews? Hebrews is a book to help the Jewish people understand why ceremonies have changed from the old covenant made only with the Jewish people to the new covenant made with Christ in the entire world. 
The Jewish Sabbath was a day of rest. After God created on six days, he rested on the seventh. And then in the law that was given to Moses, out of those 613 commands, many of them had to do with keeping the Sabbath to rest. And not only would they rest once a week, but they were to give the land a rest every 50 years called the year of Jubilee. And then they were to have special Sabbaths and different celebrations around Sabbath. They had other festivals and holy days, but this was a very important part of their religion. Here you see the author of Hebrews speaking as uh, a person looking back on this time and says they fell short of that rest. Well, were they taking the Sabbath serious? Yes, many of them were. And even to this day, modern Jews will take the Sabbath serious. So once again, if you want to talk to a Sabbath-keeping Christian like Seventh-day Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists are Sabbath keeping quote-unquote Christians. You have to ask them, do you travel on the Sabbath? Do you prepare fire or different things on the Sabbath? Because that was also a part of keeping the Sabbath, and no, they do not. As a matter of fact, I haven't met anyone other than the true Hasidic Jews that actually keep it the way the law intended it, and even then, they fall short of the law because the law involved the temple for many other of the Sabbath celebrations. So the Sabbath had very strong strict laws. Like you couldn't go more than I believe like a quarter of a mile on the Sabbath. And of course, people in Seventh-day Adventist churches and so forth, they're driving a lot longer than that. And you're not even supposed to use fire or combustion. That's why Jewish people won't even drive their cars or use their stoves. So this is very serious. But the Bible here, looking back, is telling us that even back then, though they were so serious about trying to keep the law of Sabbath, they really weren't at rest. Because the Sabbath was to teach rest. Let's keep going. For we also have heard the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed it. So they were doing the work, but they didn't have the faith in God. Let's keep going. Now we who have believed enter that what? Enter that rest. Those of us now who believe in Jesus have actually entered the rest that the Sabbath was meant to give. Not just a physical day off from work, but a spiritual rest from the works of the law trying to earn our salvation. That's what it was given for. Keep going. Just as God had said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Now, many of you, like me, probably shouldn't make promises in anger, but God made a promise in anger. You're not going anywhere in disobedience. You're not entering my rest. And how many have heard the, 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 the prophet's word, maybe in a rock and roll song, there's no rest for the wicked. That comes from the prophets, and this is what it's reiterating here. You don't have rest when you're wicked. God is angry with you. Keep going. It says, and yet, talking about God, his works had been finished since the creation of the world. God had rested after he had made everything. But it keeps going to say, for somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. The author of Hebrews says, he said that somewhere. We know where that's at. That's in the book of Genesis. Then he goes on to write, and again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Somebody say rest. 
Let's keep going. Verse 6. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not enter in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day. Somebody say a certain day. The certain day is not the seventh day. The certain day, he calls it today. Everybody say today. So now what once was the seventh day of rest that the Jewish people would do to rest from their work, God has now made a day, a day of rest for everybody, and that is today. And now why learn why today is very important. This is what he said a long time ago through David, as in the passage already quoted, today, if you hear his voice and do not harden your hearts. Today can be your day of salvation. Keep going. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Somebody say another day. Keep going. Verse 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. Keep going. Verse 11. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Notice almost it sounds like a contradiction. Make every effort to rest. Make every effort to rest. Why? Because you don't want to miss God's salvation. It says make every effort to rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Somebody say make it plain. Let's make it plain. And Paul does in another passage, which I'll read. It's a lot short and you'll get it. But I just wanted to make sure you got the depth of it. So God rested from his works to show us we were going to rest from our works. But the Jewish people weren't resting from their works. They kept trying to work their way to heaven. They missed the grace of God and lived in unbelief. And then they acted out of sin. Remember, sin always comes when we do things out of the flesh, out of our own way of thinking, our own way of doing things. And so they blew it and they missed it and they suffered punishment. Jesus is going to come die on the cross, not only for their sins, but for our sins, so that the rest that Sabbath was meant to be an example of on the seventh day would come the day, today, when you accept Jesus Christ into your heart. The day of rest, the day your soul comes to rest, is the day you believe in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ becomes your rest. That's what the author there is teaching us, but I'm glad he makes it a little bit more simpler in another passage. Let's go to Colossians chapter 2, because I believe Paul is also the author of Hebrews, and we know for sure he's the author of Colossians. Now go to Colossians chapter 2, and let's get the summary of why one out of the Ten Commandments we do not keep. And you might say, man, that doesn't sound right. Well, I'm going to explain it a little bit better as we go on, or a little bit more. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival. Somebody say a holy day. That's where we get the word holiday from, holy day. It's just the two words combined, the Y turns to I. Or a new moon celebration, or a what? Or a what? A Sabbath day. Don't let people judge you by what you eat or drink, a religious festival, uh, you know, Christmas, Easter, Sabbath, any of these things, new moon. These are all a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found where? In Christ. So the example that I always love to give is, what would you rather have, my cell phone or the shadow of my cell phone? You see, everything in the Old Testament is Christ, but he's casting it as shadows in the forms of laws. 
Why do we keep dietary laws in the why do they keep dietary laws in the Old Testament? It was a shadow of purity and of holiness. That's why when Jesus comes, he says, Now you can eat whatever you want. I'm here. It's not that he was trying to say it wasn't important back then. He's just saying the fulfillment has come. Why did they sacrifice animals? Because Jesus was going to be the great sacrifice. When he comes, we no longer sacrifice. Is everybody following? Now, does it say, let no one judge you by the kind of sex you have or the words you talk? Let nobody judge you by that. No. What's the difference between morals, the laws that do with morals, and the laws that do with eating, drinking, priesthood, celebration, religious holidays? All of these pass away in the new covenant. The morals remain the same. Why do they pass away and the morals remain the same? Is because the morals are based on the character of God. God's morals never change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, this is when people come back to us and they go, like RuPaul or Ellen, they come back to us, they go, You hypocrites! You tell us that we're wrong for being homosexual, but you eat pork. The Bible says in the same place where it says you can't eat uh, uh, pork, it says not to be a homosexual. Get it right, Christians. Why are you being hypocrites? What do we do? We point to them this scripture and we say, RuPaul, we understand what we're doing. May we teach you how to interpret the scripture. We don't judge on the ceremonies anymore, but we continue on the morals. You guys want to see it in the same exact book? See, the book of Colossians says, don't judge on these things. Don't make this about uh, these ceremonies because Christ, notice it, it's found in Christ. Where's the reality of sacrifice found? In Christ. That's why we no longer do it. Where's the reality of the Sabbath found? In Christ. That's why we no longer do it. Why do we no longer keep the Jewish uh, dietary laws? Because it's found in Christ. Does everybody get You come into Christ and you come into the fulfillment of, of Sabbath. You come into the fulfillment of priests and of sacrifice and of temples and of all of these dietary laws. Are you with me? But in Christ, you still have to keep his morals and characters. Go down to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 5. Same author, same book, same thought. When you read chapters of the Bible, don't let them divide the thought. When you read a message of me and I take a paragraph break on Facebook, do you think that's a different person talking now? We added chapters and verses just so we could follow along with each other. But when they wrote, there was no chapter and verses. It was just a letter. Are you guys tracking with me? So just continue on in the letter. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, your flesh, sexual immorality. Oh, you mean we're supposed to keep the laws of sexual immorality from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Yep. Does homosexuality have to do with sexual immorality? Yeah, it's immoral. Why do we keep those laws? Because those are the moral laws. Why do we not keep the laws of the Sabbath? The Sabbath laws were shadows. Why do we not keep the dietary laws? Shadows. Am I making it up as I go along or is that found in our scripture? So is it Jack Black's fault that he doesn't understand it? Absolutely. It's RuPaul's fault they don't understand our Bible. It's Oprah's fault because a Christian will explain it to you. And by the way, if you don't like our moral laws, then everything should go. And this is where they get upset with us. Because in those same moral laws, guess what else it says? Don't rape people. It also says don't have sex with children. So if we're just erasing laws, why don't we erase those? 
Now listen, I am not saying homosexuality among uh, you know, consenting adults is the same thing as having sex with an animal by force or to a person, etc., raping. But what I'm trying to say is if you erase a law out of the flesh, what stops you from erasing this law? That's all that I'm saying is because in our book, we have a whole bunch of moral laws that we're still keeping. I'm still keeping thou shall not rape your neighbor's wife. I'm still keeping that. That doesn't change because now I don't have to go to church on the seventh day. Do you get that? I'm still keeping not lying to you even though I can eat lechon now. Aren't you glad I'm not lying or murdering you or, you know, coveting from you or those kinds of things? Well, we keep moral laws in both covenants because it's the same God. The same God made two covenants. One was based on 613 laws to a Jewish people. The other one is based on the two commandments of loving God and your neighbor as yourself. And they're made with Christ to the whole world. Now, as a Christian, do you have permission to keep the parts of the law that you like? Yes, you do. As long as you don't try to keep the judicial laws and start stoning people. You see, we have permission to go to church on Saturday. The Bible says you could pick any day you want and go to church. That's fine. But I'm just helping you understand it wasn't a conspiracy by the Roman Catholic Church, you know, during the worship of the sun god to make Sunday your main service. That has nothing to do with nothing. The church met on the first day of the week, as we'll see in the book of Acts if we had time, because it was the first day of the week he rose. The Sabbath was a shadow. The festivals were a shadow. How many learned something from the first verse today? Amen. Thank you for listening. Going back to chapter 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone, and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were like white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel then said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Hallelujah. And that's why he's greater than Buddha. That's why he's greater than Muhammad. That's why he's greater than any political leader. Jesus conquered the grave. Jesus rose from the dead. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you so. Notice who are the first witnesses. Are they the strong disciples, the male leaders, the women? This is called historical embarrassment. If you were going to tell a historical lie, something in history, why would you make the disciples who are going to be the ones preaching the most, establishing the church in the, the, the world at that time, why would you make them look like the Oompa Loompas, the scaredy cats, and the women who did not have the same value in that culture were not really respected in court as witnesses? Why would you make them your primary witnesses? This is only explained by the actual fact that the women were better than the men. That's it. It's the truth. The women got it. The men didn't. The men were not even around. Many of them had already quit on Jesus like Peter and went back to fishing. Remember Jesus got him from fishing said, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. Now he's gone back to fishing. One of the men was so scared that he ran away naked when they tried to pull on him. He just took off his clothes and said, keep it, I'm gone. These women are the one being faithful. 
And so women, take your place in the church and be leaders for Christ. Be his witnesses. Don't let the men out, do you? Be witnesses for Christ and let your testimony change the world because that's what these mighty women did. Amen? Amen. Verse 8, so the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. Isn't that a cool statement? They were afraid, but they were filled with joy. Like they're afraid with what's going on. Like we all going to die now too or is the kingdom coming on earth? Does Armageddon happen? But I'm happy, whatever happens. I just love it. They were afraid yet filled with joy and they ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and he said, greetings. And he came, they came to him, clasped at his feet and they worshiped him. Do you notice that now we know exactly who Jesus is? Jesus is God in the flesh. Now remember, Matthew is a disciple writing this after everything has happened. So from the very beginning, he's had a story to tell us. Let's go to the beginning of his book and see if we get the story. Go to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. It's ending with the resurrected Jesus being worshipped, and then he's going to give us his final commandments. That's how Matthew's writing his gospel. Every gospel author has a different angle that the Holy Spirit's using them to write. And when we read them, they become a a surround sound. We read them together. In John's gospel, he starts, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what? The Word was God. So John wants you to start off understanding Jesus is God, and he came down here, and you better understand that. But where does Matthew start? Primarily probably written to the Jewish people. Remember, they were a part of why Jesus was crucified. And so now he's writing to them, and when he starts his letter, he doesn't start with, you know, the resurrected Lord or in heaven. He starts with the genealogies. But notice this first sentence. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So right at the beginning, he's wanting you to know Jesus is all that in a bag of chips. Jesus is the Messiah, the one everybody's been waiting for. But notice he doesn't force it on you. He's going to show you that through the line of Mary, he comes from David's lineage. But he's going to start giving you prophecies to know he's not just a mere man. He believes like John that he's the God man, but he's going to do it a little bit more subtly so you don't think that all of a sudden now Jews are worshiping a man like how you see the Hindus worship their gurus. He wants you to understand as a Jew why Jesus isn't blaspheming when he calls himself God or why he's not doing wrong when he allows people to worship him. Because even in the Bible, if angels were worshiped, the angels would say, don't do that. That's, uh, that's blasphemy. That's idolatry. And we know when the church starts, somebody tried to worship Peter like they do the Pope now. And, and Peter was like, don't do that. I'm just a man. But somehow Jesus allows worship. He's going to give us some prophecies, three major prophecies right at the beginning of his book. Go to Matthew chapter 1. Somebody say, bring it. This is where it comes back to the Christmas message, which we'll be going over next week. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. Go to Isaiah 7.14. You see, he takes this prophecy that he's going to be called Emmanuel. But hold on before you go to the scripture. Just go back there so they can see in the notes. It says that they name him Jesus, though. Did Matthew just contradict himself? You're going to call him Emmanuel, but then I want you to name him Jesus. Does he have two names? What's going on? Everybody watch this. 
Jesus means Yahweh saves, Yahshua in the Hebrew. Emmanuel means God with us. A lot of people had the name Jesus, including Joshua. Joshua is the English rendition of Yahshua. If you go from Hebrew into English, you go from Yahshua, you want to make that English, that's Joshua. Where do we get the word Jesus? When you go from Hebrew, Yahshua, to Greek, Jesus. Then you go to Jesus or Jesus in Spanish. That comes more directly from the Greek language. Now, some people will want to mess with you and say there was no J. So back then, that's an English word. And if you really want to be saved, you have to say his Hebrew word, the Yahshua. But that's incorrect. And why is that? Because the Christians wrote the Bible in Greek. They're the one that gave us the name Jesus. So there's no problem in calling him Jesus or Jesus. Do you get it? But if you want it to be technically correct, going from Hebrew, Yahshua, his name is also Joshua. I know that would mess up some of our songs, but the name, whether it's pronounced Joshua or Jesus, means the same exact thing from the Hebrew word, Yahshua. Is everybody tracking with me? But why is it he's called Emmanuel but named Jesus? Now, here's the thing. Emmanuel literally means God with us. Look at uh, Isaiah 7:14. Some of you know Emmanuel's, you named your children Emmanuel's, and if you did it wrong, you blasphemed. Oh, what did I do wrong, Pastor? Did I blaspheme? I'll help you. Let's decide. You see, his name was Yahshua, Jesus, his name. Yahshua means the Lord saves, but Emmanuel means God with us, and it says that that would be what he's known as. So let me ask you a question. When you named your child Emmanuel, are you telling us that that is who they are, God with us? Or are you doing that in remembrance of God being with us? There's the difference. Do you understand? All biblical names, or I shouldn't say all, a lot of biblical names have the name of God in it. But we do have to be very distinctive with Emmanuel. Emmanuel is not like any of the other names. Let me give you an example. Elijah. Eli, God, Yah, Jah. My God, Eli, Eli is God, is Yah, Yahweh. God is Elijah, or God is Yahweh. That's what Elijah means. When you look at Daniel, El, El is God at the end of his name, and all of these other kinds of names have God in them and so forth. But this is not just a name that you can say God is doing something, like God hears or God listens. No, this is literally saying, Emmanuel, God is right here now. So what Jesus would have is the name Jesus, which was a popular name, but he would have the title, the title, like I'm a pastor, he would have the title, Emmanuel, God with us. This is not just describing God somewhere has now come and helped us. No, no, no. This is literally saying when you see the one being titled, being given the honor of Emmanuel, you're looking at God with us. That's Matthew's point of bringing this up in Isaiah chapter uh, 7, 14, it says, therefore, God will give you a sign, the virgin. See, this is a prophecy. Hundreds of years before Jesus will conceive, give birth to a son, and you will call him. It doesn't say you will name. That will be his name. No, his name's going to be Yahshua, but you're going to call him like in worship. Emmanuel, God is with us. It's an amazing prophecy. That's who Matthew wants you to know he is. It's a little subtle, but you got to start working your way through it. Let's go to the second prophecy. Go to the book of Matthew. Again, Go to the book of Matthew, chapter 2. Where was, uh, where was uh, uh, Jesus born? In what town? Come on, all my people who like Christmas. What town was he born in? 
Bethlehem. Let's look to the prophecy about that. Go to Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, it says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Does everybody get that? What does Matthew want you to do? He wants you to go back, back and look at that passage about the ruler. Go to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So out of Bethlehem comes a ruler. And Why is Matthew bringing it up? Come on, say it again. Back that thing up, Pastor. Oh, you know I'm going to drop it like it's hot. I'm going to back that thing up. I'm going to back it up right now. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come a, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, watch this, whose origins are of old, from ancient times. Ah, oh, what does Matthew want you to know by that prophecy? The one born in, Ma in, in Bethlehem is not being created in Bethlehem. That is not the origin of his existence. His origins are of ancient times. Who is the only person in the Bible known to be the ancient one? God, the ancient of days. Does everybody get it? He has the same origin as the ancient of days. He's going to come to Bethlehem, but where he really comes from is the Ancient of Days. Are you learning something about what Matthew's doing? That's why at the resurrection, Jesus is getting worshipped. Matthew has wanted you to follow his story, that he was born of a virgin, that whenever you saw him, you literally saw God with us, and that his origins were from of old. And let's watch, uh, read rather, one other prophecy. How many like John the Baptist? Okay, go to Matthew chapter 3, verse 3. When John the Baptist tells us who he is, notice what it says here. He takes this prophecy from Isaiah 43, and he says, I am a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for another prophet. No, prepare the way for what? The Lord makes straight paths for him. Go to Isaiah 43. So many of us have heard Jesus is Lord, Lord Jesus, that we forget the importance of the word Lord attached to Jesus. Is Jesus just like our landlord? Is he just like our boss, Lord, like Lord of the manor, boss of the manor? No, no, no. Look at what Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 says. It says here, for I am the Lord your God, 40 Chapter 40, verse 3. Notice what it says when it says, I prepare a way for the Lord. Do you see the word Lord there in all caps? Highlight on that, please, so they can see the Hebrew word. That is the word for God. Right-click on it so they can see. That is Yahweh. John the Baptist literally said, I am preparing the way of Yahweh. Yahweh is going to come, and I'm sweeping the path. I'm laying out the red carpet for God to walk among us. That's why he says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. When he sees him afar off, he says, behold the Lamb of God. John the Baptist understood who he is. Now let's go back to the notes and put it all together. Matthew is now ending the book that he has spent all of this time to write. And here is the crescendo. Jesus is rise from the dead and he's being worshipped. Why do we have to understand everything prior to this? Because if they're worshipping a man, they're the worst idolaters right now. 
They deserve to die. They're not good Jews, and all Jews should run away from the Christians because the Christians are promoting a false god named Jesus. But if Matthew did his job right, who is being worshipped? The same one from Exodus 20, verse 4. The same one from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. Now, let us go to John 1.14. Let's go to another disciple's simple way of saying this. John 1.14. And then also put in the next passage over here, John 1.14. Guys, you got to listen, please, to the passages I'm mentioning. John 1.14. And then put in the passage next to it. Next to it up here. Uh, click for me, please. you got to put up there, yep, Genesis 18. Now get the fullness of this. Get the fullness. Go to, Genesis, uh, go to John chapter 1. Verse 18, look at what it says. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, has made him known. 118, no one has ever seen who? No one has ever seen who? God, but the one and only Son, who is himself what? And is at the Father's right hand. His closest relationship to him has made him known. Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. Why is this important to understand? It says in Genesis 18, verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham. But I thought nobody could see God. How would you as a Jewish person explain this? Jewish, you can ask him. Ask any Jewish person, can anybody see God? He'll be like, no, of course you can't see God. He's too great for us. Okay, then who did Abraham meet with in Genesis 18? In the beginning of the Bible, who is meeting with these people calling himself the Lord? Go to Genesis chapter 19. Sodom and Gomorrah happens. We learn that the Lord rained down fire and brimstone from who? You guys were here for this. The Lord rained down fire and brimstone from who, guys? The Lord. Is that a contradiction? Are there two lords? No, why is it now we're going to end the book of Matthew with Jesus saying, baptize them in the name, the one name of the Lord, who is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Matthew is teaching us the Trinity that we saw at the baptism, Father speaking, Son baptized, Holy Spirit coming down, the Trinity that we saw at the mountain of transfiguration, Father speaking, cloud of glory, the Holy Spirit, Son glowing like the sun. He is showing us that the Lord, the Yahweh, the God we We've always seen is the son and he took on flesh to die for us rose from the dead he's worthy of worship that's Jesus that's Jesus go to Genesis chapter 19 just so you can see it in the black and white of the scriptures the Bible teaches us who our Lord is not many lords there's one Lord but he is the father the son and the Holy Spirit look at verse 25 of verse 24 then Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. How many lords do Christians believe in? One, but he is the Father, he is the Son, and he is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the God-man. He is Emmanuel. He is the one born of a virgin who comes from ancient times. He is God walking among us. Go back to Matthew chapter 28. How many are learning something today? When we look at Jesus being worshipped, we see the fullness of who he is. Now he tells them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There you will see me. Keep going to verse 11. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Do they believe? Of course not. When the chief priests 
had heard this, they met together with the elders and devised a plan. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole away the body while we were asleep. In this, if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money, did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Now notice this. Matthew's writing around 60 AD, and he's telling people this message. I know he rise from the dead. I saw him. I watched him ascend to heaven. I saw my man Thomas touch him. This is a true story. But what are the people of that day hearing? That's not true. Matthew's lying to you. They stole the body. They stole the body. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And so Matthew is telling you, don't believe those guys when they tell you those lies. Now, I want you to think about this. Who had more of a right, or I should say more of a, a motive to lie? The disciples or the Jews? The Jewish people. Why is that? What would the disciples gain by lying? Let's say you want to make up a religion. Would you want to make up a religion where your, your boss just got crucified and killed, betrayed by your own people? Is that a religion you want to make up and make that guy the founder? What benefit would you get by telling a lie like Weekend at Bernie's, if anybody remembers that movie, a guy that dies and the people try to make him look alive so they don't get in trouble? What benefit would you get to steal the body? Here he is, decrepit, wretched, all of his body parts falling apart and everything. And you're like, here he is. He's rise from the dead, everybody. And you do a little puppet movement with him. What benefit do you get? Your own people hate what you're doing, so you get no props from the Jewish people, and the Romans don't want anything to do with it. That's why they crucified him. What benefit do you as a God-fearing Jew get by making up a lie? You're breaking the commands. You're lying. You're following a man that's already died and messed up. And some people say, well, what if he didn't die because the Romans didn't know what they were doing, so he resuscitated? So here you got a guy with a busted up eye, his face is all messed up from getting punched and spat on, and you're like, you're Lord. No, you're not. You're looking at Jesus feeling sorry for him. Oh, Dito, I uh, guess that didn't work out too well. Let's go hide you somewhere. You're not going, he's Lord, and I'm willing to die for it. Think about it like this. What group of people in all of history have you ever heard make up a lie that got them no benefit, and when put to death, no one recanted the lie. I'm not saying have people in history believed lies. That's different. We all can be deceived into believing a lie, but this is not like a Muslim willing to fly his plane into a building because he thinks he's going to go to heaven. Remember, he doesn't think it's a lie. He actually believes it. But the disciples, to pull this off, would have had known it was a lie. They were lying. And you're telling me they're all going to go from being cowards in the story to now being willing to die, their children dying, being burned alive, eaten alive, and all they had to do... Just one of them, one of them at any time had to say, it's a lie, it's a lie, don't burn me, it's a lie. You see, who had the more motive to lie? It was the Jewish people because they're trying to cover this up. What is going on? The body's now gone. We got to cover this up. Let's say they stole the body. Now, we know that would be a crime against Rome, and if you did that, you would be killed. But they said, we'll take care of it when, when they start to come around and uh, ask what happened here. We'll, we'll make sure you guys don't die, because the Roman soldiers could have died. Anyone who was a part of that could have died. But they said, well, we'll just cover it up. Just, just let the lie get out that somebody stole the body. 
And here's another thing to think about. Why does Paul, who we know about in the story, has a vision of Jesus now convert from Judaism, which he once was, and he was persecuting Christians, he was an enemy of Christians. Why does he claim to have a vision and now write the majority of our Christian scriptures? What happened with Paul? How do you explain that on a lie? He had nothing to do with that group that would have been smoking, hallucinating, talking to Jesus like somebody talks to their aunt after they pass. Oh, yeah, Aunt Mima came and saw me last night. Maybe that's how they saw Jesus. No, Jesus didn't come as a ghost into their room. But even if that was what happened to these boys, how does now Paul get so convinced from going, to a per- going from a persecutor of Christianity to now himself being an apostle willing to die? He gets beheaded. And how does Peter go from being a coward running away to being the first one who preaches? And they get beat and flogged. And like I said, they die. Peter gets crucified upside down. Why doesn't Peter just deny himself, uh, to deny Jesus and go, man, that's not true? And now some people may say, lastly, well, all of this is legend. Jesus is a legend. His disciples are a legend. All of this came out afterward. That is so untrue. Our historical records show us within years of this time period, all of this is happening. Even the Romans say people were worshiping Jesus as a God, even though we're trying to stop them. What happened that day? Why did Jews start worshiping a man that they believed was God? Why did Christianity start to spread, not by a sword, not like Islam, not by culture like the Hindu gurus in India, but against culture unto death for 300 years until it brought Rome to its knees and Rome became a Christian nation? What caused those men and women to lay down their lives for hundreds of years after this? to bring a revolution to where now Jesus is the most popular name in the world, the Bible's the most read book, Christianity, the largest religion. What happened those days? We believe that Jesus rose from the dead, just like he said he would. He met with his disciples, and as a cover-up, people tried to say they stole his body. And that is not true, my friends. I trust their testimonies. It's rational. It's not blind faith. Well, I'll just trust them and step out off the ledge. No, no, no. This is, it's more rational to believe this happened than to believe that lie because the lie cannot explain the facts. The facts are he was crucified. The facts are he was buried in a place where they named the tomb. They didn't just say he got buried somewhere over here. Joseph, Arimathea, that tomb, that's where he was buried. It's gone, body gone. And disciples claim to see him, die for him, live for him. Explain all of that. Ready, set, go. I'll give you the resurrection as that explanation any day, all day. And not only all the facts of history, but our personal experience with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He is still saving. He is still healing. He is still doing everything he promised he would do. And that's why this religion didn't die out a few years after the founder as so many other religions do. It was based on the miracle. And the miracle is still with us today, the resurrection life. Verse 16 Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. There they go. They're finally there, right? The disciples are part of the plan now. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. (laughs) It's like, come on, guys. We were rooting for you. You're finally in the right place at the right time. You believe it, Thomas. Come on. You believed him, right, Thomas? Nope. Another gospel says he has to have a long conversation with Thomas. Women believed Women were all good. They were down with that. But all of a sudden, no, Thomas like, unless I touch him here, unless I hang out with him, unless he proves it, proves it, proves it. 
But what does this show us right here that you can still doubt even in the face of all of that? If Adam and Eve, made miraculously by God to live in the Garden of Eden, could doubt God and follow a serpent that was talking, come on, somebody, anybody can deceive, be deceived and not believe. So a lot of us here are like, if I just saw this, this, and that, I would believe. I know we think Thomas got that, and it's unfair that we didn't, but even Thomas at some point had to have belief. Nothing is going to take away your free will. Remember we talked about thou shall not steal? and the commandments reflect the, uh, the character of God, you know why God's not going to make you believe? Because that would be stealing your will. God's not going to make you and take from something from you, like make you believe. It's a choice. And even then, some had to decide whether or not to believe, even after they saw all that they saw. But many worshiped. How many today worship Jesus? We see that concept again. He is the God man. Keep going. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the singular name, not names of the Father and names of the Son. No, it's the name of God, who is the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then he ends with this precious promise that only God could keep. A prophet couldn't be with you everywhere you go, but God can be with you everywhere you go. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the church age. The first age was the age of the Jewish people in that covenant. Now we're in a new covenant, a new age. And this age will end with judgment. And then the ages to come will be in eternity. And so Christ is telling us he has the authority of everything and that he wants us to make new disciples like how he made them disciples. And we want to baptize them, initiate them into the church, into his body through the baptism of the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them not to obey just the easy things, but teach them to obey everything that he's commanded, believing that he's going to be with us always. Just a couple things here in closing is that sometimes people try to be sassy and they say, if he was really Jesus, the son of God, and he was really God, and he had all authority, and he's had all power, why does he now need it given to him at resurrection? If God has all authority, can you ever give it to him? He already has it. This teaches us why he became a man. Who lost authority in the Garden of Eden? Did God lose authority? No, mankind did. We were given dominion over the earth. Then we were cursed, and the earth has dominion over us as well as Satan. Jesus came to take on flesh so that as a man, he could get back for us the authority and the dominion that we lost. And now he is resurrected in bodily form. He is forever the God-man. Some cults teach that after he rose from the dead, he just became a spirit as he was in, before the uh, incarnation. But that's not true. That's why he meets with Thomas and says, I'm not just a spirit. I can, you can touch me. I have flesh and bone. Notice he doesn't say blood. Blood is a part of what makes the flesh live in the earth context, but the spirit, the glory of God is what makes your flesh and bone live in the spiritual world that's to come. So as you have blood flowing through your body now for life, you'll soon have glory. That's why the Bible says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But Jesus said, I am flesh and bone. Uh, uh, you know, take out the blood, put in the glory. That's why he could walk through walls. That's why he could change his figure. In the book of Luke, he played a trick on them and looked like somebody else. And even it says here in Matthew, he just appeared to them. 
Now, oftentimes we read the Bible and we go, oh, that's just silly. But what is illogical about that? What is illogical about the creator in his creation doing supernatural things? When I go into the virtual reality world, I can walk through a wall if I want to. When I go into the virtual world, I can change my avatar. I can change my shape. Come on, young guys with video games. I can get a new dance after I make a kill. Why can't he come into this world and change his appearance, walk through walls, and go wherever he wants? He's the creator. So everybody understand this. He's not breaking natural laws. He is superseding natural laws. He is supranatural. He is not just natural. He is supernatural or supranatural, surpassing our limited understanding. And now we see he has all the authority. So who has all the authority in the heavenly realms? Jesus. That's why we can call on his name and start casting out demons. If you look in the Old Testament, not, not much going on with demons. They really didn't have a lot of authority over those spirits. Only here and there you see them mentioned. But once Jesus comes on the scene, it's like the spiritual battle erupts. And now we're casting out those spirits because he has the authority from heaven to earth. How about healing? Once again, sprinkled all throughout the Old Testament. But now the Bible says in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes on them, sons and daughters start doing mighty works. And we're seeing greater works than even Jesus because he said, when I go to heaven, you'll do greater works than these. Not greater in power. You can't get more powerful than raising somebody from the dead, but greater in number. The church has multiplied across the earth and has become like little Christ, not little gods, but Christ-like in our act because of his authority, and now we're seeing multiplied people healed, multiplied people raised from the dead. That's exactly what he said would happen because he, Jesus, has all the authority. And not only that, but he has all the authority of every world government, every politician, every leader is going to bow their knees to Jesus. Why not do it now and put Christ at the center of all that we do? We can still have a democracy. We can still allow people to choose their own religion, but let's trust in God and not trust in money. Let's put people back onto the Bible and to the things of God. And the Ten Commandments are still great because even though one of them is a ceremonial law, it reminds us of the greatness of our God and his character and teaches us his ways and to walk as God-fearers. And then lastly, let's look at, surely I'm with you, or rather go to teaching you to obey everything, please. I was out preaching yesterday. Can you highlight that portion? I was out yesterday, please and thank you. I was out preaching at Logan Square, one of my favorite places to teach the commands of God. Uh, one of my favorite places out there because they get so riled up. And uh, we had a Christian come and tell us, can you just highlight that sentence and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. I want you to focus on this because one of these uh, dear deceived Christians uh, came to the mic and wanted to kind of discuss with us maybe a different approach to how we preach. Um, they were kind of what I call a secret service Christian. Shh, don't tell anybody. I'm undercover. I believe the Bible like these guys, but I don't talk about it. Here, I'll show you my badge. I'm one of you guys. I really am. I'm one of you. But uh, I don't want to talk about the commands of God unless somebody can hear me. You mean the command not to be a homosexual? Shh. Yes, those kind of commands. We don't talk about this. So they kind of, he came up to me, and, and he's like, I want to show you a better way. Okay, you've been doing this for all of five seconds. We've been doing it 20 years. We come from the Bible. You come from Oprah Winfrey, but you're going to teach us a better way. Okay, I'm listening. You have my attention. Why don't you start with the easy stuff? Jesus loves you. He has a plan for your life. He's, you know, he just wants to, he wants to make you giggle every day. He wants to bring you to heaven. 
And then on the sneaky sneak, then tell them the other stuff. What does it say there? Teach them to obey everything. What about everything don't we understand? Now, I'm not saying every time I meet a sinner, I go, let me go through one, two, three, four, five. Let me go through everything. No, but I bring up the everything that relates to them. If I see you cursing, I'm going to teach you about the command of having wholesome words. I see you living with a woman or a man you're not married to, I'm going to teach you about sexual purity. I see you on Belmont and Clark in Boys Town, I'm going to teach you about one, uh, you know, one marriage, one, one man, one woman in marriage for life. There's, there is no way to like soften this. And then I was talking to him, and I was like, do you remember the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, like Jesus' most famous sermon? It says if you lust, you're guilty of adultery, and it's better for you to pluck out your eye than go to hell. Same Jesus, same sermon. You've heard it said thou shalt not murder, but if you get angry, cuss out your, person, uh, your friend, you're in danger of hellfire. My Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven because he didn't want us to go there. So this idea that we're not supposed to teach them everything is bogus, it's not biblical, and then let me tell you this, it don't work anyway. Even if it did work, I still wouldn't do it, but it doesn't work. I could put you on to a church in this city right now where they dress like elves from the pulpit. They got tight little pants on like jeggings, and then they got their little elf shoes on, and the guys wear a blouse, and they sashay around the pulpit. I could put you onto a church exactly like that right now and show you their Google review. In the Google review, a woman who is a lesbian says, I went to this church for years, and they, they, they acted like they loved me, and they approved of my lifestyle, but then I wanted them to marry me, and they said they wouldn't, and then they tried to pull, it, pull me aside and talk to me privately instead of in front of everybody, and so I'm here to expose them. They really don't believe that homosexuals can marry. You see how that blew up in that church's face? Not here. We'll tell you what we believe right now. I'm telling you. What do you want to know about a command of God? I'll tell you. Why? Because I love you. And we have many gay, lesbian, transgender, uh, you know, bisexual, whatever. We have so many of those in this church. Why? Because they've come, they've heard the truth, and now they decided whether or not they want to obey. Well, pastor, I wasn't born that way. Pastor, I was born this way. We'll get born again the right way, as I always say. Get born again. Good morning, and that's the whole purpose of a changed life. And then people say, well, what if I still feel it? Man, I still feel like cheating on my wife. I still feel like slapping you in the face sometimes. We don't live by our feelings. We live by the Spirit of God. Am I supposed to act on every feeling I got? Oh, man, you don't understand. No, you don't know how crazy I can be. Man, you want to take a trip in here? You want to take a trip? I mean, just look at what you've seen pastors do with their authority. Rob people, molested children. I mean, it's gross and sick and twisted. Thank God I've been free from all of that. But it's not like the devil hasn't tried to tempt. He tries to tempt all of us. How many of you have been tempted to murder? Come on, be honest. You could get away with it. Many of you would have tried. How many of you have been tempted to rape while you were in the drugs or in a drunken state? All of us in different ways have been tempted to do gross, vile, disgusting things. As a matter of fact, there's a man who studied genocide, and he wrote a book about it, The Average Genocidal Maniac. I forget the title, but it's something like that. And it, and it, and it talks about cultures, whether it was Germany or during the communism of Russia or in China. Average people, just like you and me, were seditious against the things of truth and killed and dismembered and did all of that because their government gave them permission. 
One Christian being tortured by the government, he said, I saw evil, what it's like when people can do whatever they want. It's like, this is what you can do now. Let it all out. It's like that person in traffic that's angry with you. If they could get away with it, what would they want to do to you in those moments? You know, people have been vile throughout human history, and they make excuses for it. No, we've all sinned. We all need Jesus. And it doesn't say here, well, when you're perfect at keeping the commands, then you can teach others the commands. No, one of the commands that when you're not perfect is to repent. I keep that command too, y'all. So otherwise, he would have had to send angels to preach the gospel. A hypocrite is someone who doesn't repent of their sins or acknowledge it. I agree with that. If you're a hypocrite, please don't preach. You're doing more harm than good. But if you're truly a disciple of Christ and you have sinned and you've repented, you're still qualified to do this. You're still qualified. And so what we need to do is come back to this great commission and make it our mission and go, I want to be a disciple. And I want to go and make other disciples. I want to teach the world about Jesus And then notice this, he's with us always. So when we're doing the work of God, wherever we are, in our families, in our homes, on the jobs, we have that peace, that rest we talked about, that true Sabbath rest, that we know God is with us and that nothing can separate us from his love. And so that's the peace that these disciples had. And that's how Matthew wanted to end the gospel, led of the Holy Spirit, was to be bold, be powerful in Christ's name, and to know that he'll be with us. So how many disciples do I have here today that want to make disciples with Jesus? Can we stand up? Let's give it up for Jesus. Congratulations. You have finished the book of Matthew. Band and altar workers, would you come, please? If you're here today and Jesus is not the Lord of your life, you have not surrendered to him, please.